thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. And uh, just, you know, to get you a little excited, this is our most requested form of content, the long form discussions with survivors instead of just like the five to seven minute videos. And so we're really excited to have you on. Thank you. And if you want to maybe introduce yourself, Jorge, and then uh, give an explanation of what you do right now and where you came from to kind of give some relevancy to the topic that we're discussing today. <laughs> know, well, thank you, Morgan. And uh, first of all, thanks for the invitation and thank you for all the work you do, you know, uh, promoting the stories like mine, you know, about people who came from socialist countries. Uh, it is a, uh, I think it is a really important uh, thing to do right now. So my name is Jorge Galicia. I am a 25 years old Venezuelan uh, political activist. Uh, also, I am an asylum seeker here in the US. And uh, I came to this country almost uh, three years ago. And the reason I'm, I came is because, uh, you know, I was an activist for freedom back in Venezuela. Uh, I was opposing, opposing the socialist regime we currently have there and because of my actions and because of my activism, I was forced to come here. Um, the year 2017, one of my best friends uh, was captured by Maduro's political police uh, because we were so involved in the massive demonstrations going on against Nicolas Maduro that year and because of course, because of that, of course, my friend was, was captured, the police broke into, the, into his house in the middle of the night with no warrant, with no kind of legality or due process, and they took him away. And uh, because of that, I was basically forced to go into hiding, into isolation, because you know he and I were part of the same team. We were doing exactly the same activities at the same time and location. And um, well, that this was a life-changing situation for me because I know I knew for a fact that if he was being taken by the police, the next in line in order to be captured was me, because well, as I told you, we were part of the same team. So. I was forced to go into hiding. I was sent into a religious place where you know I cannot reveal to you the information of that place, like the name, the location, and not even the religion that they follow in this place because I don't want to you know compromise the safety of the, of the people that run this place in Venezuela. But I was sent there and I was in total isolation, meaning that I needed to turn off completely my my cell phone, my shut down all of my social media accounts. Uh, I wasn't able to communicate with anybody outside this place. So it was a a really stressing situation for me and well uh, and this was in the year 2017 uh, you know I, after this uh, you know after three months my friend was uh, thanks god uh, released from prison and this also allowed me to resume a little bit my ordinary life in venezuela i never got to be the same after that of course um, because i was always living the fear you know of, i was always expecting the police to show up uh, at my front door, just the way it happened to him. But uh, the next year, I was able to, you know, to finish. I, I, I am an attorney back in Venezuela. I finished my law degree in the, in the year 2018. And uh, after that, uh, I basically was selected to do a leadership program back in, in you know, here in the United States. Um, and because I, you know, after this episode, I stopped doing all kind of activism because, you know, I, I didn't want to go through the same all over again that this, but this helped. This decision helped me to, you know, keep my head down, and 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 the regime kind of forgot about me, and I was able to, to, to come here. And well, once I was here, I resumed my activism, doing activities like this one today. And, and because of this, I was forced to claim asylum. And well, since then, I've been here, since I since I arrived in here, you know, exposing the truth about socialism and why it is so important to defend uh, liberty. Yeah, well, I love that. And actually, you talking about uh, seeking asylum, I think it's interesting. 
right now, the Supreme Court just upheld Trump's MPP, which is the requirement to remain in Mexico for a lot of the people coming from the Northern Triangle. I saw something that said nine out of 10 people that come from those areas are not actual asylum seekers. And so they they get rejected. But Biden's policy was to let them in the country. And then they just had to report when it was their time and when it was their time to hear the case. And uh, the Supreme Court just knocked that down. And when I first launched Young Americans Against Socialism, we got invited with the Tea Party. I don't know if you ever do any stuff with them, but they invited us to go to an immigration briefing back in 2019 about how the problem really with all this border crisis, and back then it wasn't as bad, obviously, um, but with the overwhelmed border, we weren't able to actually get the people seeking true asylum, especially from socialist and communist countries like you, through the process in a safe amount of time because it was so overwhelmed already. And so fixing the immigration problem would help us be able to become that that place where people can seek refuge from uh, oppression, authority, tyranny, and all those terrible things that do happen in the world. So do you have any thoughts on that? And, and yeah, have you been I, seeing that case? I think this is a real problem because, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I claim asylum in the year 2019, and I'm still waiting for my appointment, you know, for a chance to get to, 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 to expose my case in front of the authorities, right? Because so many people are claiming asylum that, you know, the line in order to, to get to, to receive your audience is like super long. And, and you know, my, my father who came here in the year 2016 is, is going through something similar. He, he claimed asylum in the year 2016, and he's still waiting for, for, for his first hearing you know it's, it's, it's crazy wow. i mean how long this process takes because of a lot of people claiming asylum of course i don't want to say that many people show many of these claims are fake or not but of course yeah, something you never know what they fix yeah because i mean you yeah I, I know a lot of people who who come here and they spend here like i don't know 10 20 years waiting for for their hearing and then they get denied and then they have to go back to some place that they don't even recognize anymore i mean it's crazy I rather have my hearing right now and and know my result. And like, yeah, can I stay? Can I, I have to go right away and not spend and not spend here the rest? I don't know a decade or two decades, and then realizing that I need to to go somewhere else is is crazy. Yeah, I. For me, it's it's great inspiration for us to fix the problem because there are people that really truly need to seek asylum, like that original definition of what that means to seek refuge, and we're unable to be that that safe haven for people the way we used to be. I mean, my my parents or my family came a few generations ago from Italy in that same way of like wanting to start that American dream, and they were hard workers, and all those immigrants were back then, and so that mentality is still very much alive amongst so many people that do want to come and make sacrifices and be patient to make it to America. So I'm just really appreciative of those those kind of people. Uh, what really strikes me though, so many people are willing to be very successful in their career in their home country, and then maybe take that hit and go down a few pegs in that term of like in their career, what they can achieve uh, if it means being able to live in a country like America. And so you're, you were an attorney. Was it yeah. hard for you to say, I might not be able to do this kind of stuff when I get to this new country, or were you coming up with plans? How'd you do that as a young person that needs to pay the bills? Well, originally I came here because I was elected to do a leadership program. It's, it was never okay. my, my intention to stay here, but you know, I came here in the year 2019 and, that, and during this year, Venezuela was on the top of the news because all of these things that we were seeing with Juan Guaido and his assumption as the legitimate president of Venezuela and all of the attention that the U.S. was paying to the, to the situation going on there. Uh, well, because of that, you know, I was a Venezuelan in the middle of Phoenix, not a lot of Venezuelans around there. 
and I was a political activist in Venezuela. So I received, I started to receive a lot of attention, local media in Arizona, the students groups at ASU. I mean, a lot of people started to invite invited me to invite me to different places to speak about what was going on. So out of nowhere, I started to do a, to do a lot of activism here in America, and I. When I was, you know, when the program was about to end, I realized that it was not a, no, no longer an option for me to, re, to return to Venezuela because I know that if I return, I'm going to, you know, end up in prison. And that's that's a fact. Yeah. So, so I, what I'm curious about, too, I mean, you hear stories like yours where it's like, oh, I got in this leadership program and then I had this path into America. And then once I was there, I finally started to like speak out and be more active, but obviously you couldn't when you were there. I hear other people that are like, I was scared to get on that dang plane because I was worried the entire second they were going to rip me off. Is, is there a difference there? Is it like the people oh. that maybe spoke out and were more active there are going to have a harder time getting out of the country in general? I mean, or a, how does that work? As a matter of fact, when I was, uh, you know, getting to the airport in, in, in Caracas, I, I, I was super scared because I didn't know if the authorities there were going to allow me to, 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 to fly. But as I told you, this all of these events happened in the year 2017. And during this year, so many people were doing exactly the same things. I mean, we were millions in the streets of Venezuela. And of course, I, you know, the, these are local police uh, search. I mean, the police is not going to spend a lot of resources looking for one single guy when you have one, millions of people doing literally the same. So, you know, as I told you, I managed to go into hiding. I kept my head low and, and they kind of forgot what I, who I was probably because I was never like a huge uh, profile among the opposition in Venezuela, of course. But once I came here and I started to, to speak and all of these different events and posted them on social media, of course, they start to pay attention again to the things I'm doing. Actually, um, I think a year ago, my, my, my Twitter account was, um, was hacked by someone in Venezuela. I received this notification that someone opened my, my uh, session from Venezuela and I and you know all of this kind of stuff shows to me that they are you know paying attention to the kind of activism like that leaders like me or Daniel Di Martino or Franklin Camargo all of these uh, great Venezuelans are doing tremendous work trying to expose everything that's going on there so um, you know I'm, I'm more than sure that if I return under these circumstances my, my life is going to be in danger. Yeah and, and would you say with your experience of it, a lot of people are concerned in America with the growing faceless bureaucracy, right? I mean, you have like the the three-letter acronym organizations in our country that are doing things like spying on Tucker Carlson's text messages. And I have some people that aren't really aware of the fact that this is something the left usually does when they rise to power. They start monitoring, monitoring political opposition and they do it because they need to make sure they're controlling the population that's against them. And one of those ways to do it is to get rid of their thought leaders. And when you think of people like Tucker Carlson, he's a big thought leader for people, average Joes, like my mom and dad that watch Tucker Carlson almost every night. And so it makes a lot of sense when you understand the checklist of history of what usually happens when leftist groups rise to power. But we're seeing that growing bureaucracy in America. Was that the case with you guys where it's like you could be on some hidden list held by the Venezuelan government and that's why you're going to be concerned to go into airports, concerned to go through those basic services you might be rejected or might be taken in? Is that how it works? Yeah, actually, I mean, you know, I, I need to tell you, I used to work I, uh, for a uh, uh, some certain organizations within the so I'm not going to mention any name, but some of these organizations told me, hey, we have some contacts within the police and your name is one of, in one of these lists that, you know, you need to be careful and you need to 
basically disappeared. That's what's one of all the reasons that I, why I decided to go into hiding, you know, some people warned me beforehand. Uh, so yes, I mean, it's pretty scary to see situations like this happening right now in America, which I mean, of course, America right now is not like Venezuela, but you know, maybe this could be like the first steps into something bigger, right? I don't know. Yeah. What about the police situation? Were they, did they used to be good? Because a lot of people in America, for example, like we look at the second amendment, we look at our military, we look at our police force and we say, these are all good patriotic people. Like we have our second amendment, we have our police and our military and, and nothing could really go wrong because we would stand for certain principles. And so a lot of people now are getting a little mad at the police for enforcing a lot of the COVID stuff. And you're seeing that interesting situation of the back, the blue people are starting to say, well, what are you guys doing to us? Like, when are you going to look at your bosses and say, we're not going to enforce these rules? So it's an interesting check on the power because that's how our system is supposed to be set up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but did you guys have that? I've heard that there was like the Chavistas, the Collectivos, they kind of became paid police when they came into power. Can you explain anything you know about that one? I mean, if, if the police in Venezuela and the military forces were somehow good, we would not have Maduro right now. I mean, the reason there is a dictatorship right now in Venezuela is because the dictatorship controls all of the armed forces of the country. So, uh, of course, they created this other civil group of named collectivos, which are civilians carrying long weapons and terrorizing society across the streets to, uh, to you know, to avoid uh, any kind of political opposition to the regime in the streets of Venezuela. Um, you know, Hugo Chavez in the year 2012, he did a huge push for gun control and, 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 and gun confiscations within Venezuela. Of course, we never had something like the Second Amendment here in there in Venezuela, but uh, Hugo Chavez, you know, really, really tried to take guns from ordinary citizens uh, in, in the name of safety and in the name of I don't know what. But, you know, right now, of course, I don't think we can it is so obvious that we cannot trust uh, our police uh, officers anymore. And, and the little, the, the few that who have, that actually have tried to do something against the regime are ended up in prison or, or, or even murder sometimes. It is quite sad, but I, you know, I, I really love the idea of having constitutional right, uh, you know, to carry guns because I really wish we had something like that in Venezuela and, and people, I don't think we, we should, we should, we would be in the same place we are today if we had something like the Second Amendment. Now, you mentioned that they they pitched gun control and gun confiscations as a measure for safety. Can you elaborate on that one, please? <laughs> because yeah, it happens I mean, now and, and we hear those same it, people it happened, saying it couldn't and, happen here. And, you know, sadly, you know, it happened even with uh, um, even the opposition within Venezuela was uh, in favor of this kind of measures. I mean, nobody really... Uh, did a, a huge push against these kind of, of, of measures, push, uh, uh, you know, established by Hugo Chavez. And uh, of course, criminality levels in Venezuela are super high. I think we are one of the most dangerous countries in the in, 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 the, in our hemisphere. And this is regard, uh, despite all of this gun control regulation that were established, um, which were never, you know, supposed to fix uh, uh, security for the country, but this was always to impose more political and social control for, you know, for the dictatorship. Okay. Interesting. Uh, let's go back a little bit. Can you just explain your childhood and the kind of education you had, the bringing up that you experienced? Because 
I, I hear a lot of people that talk more about like, oh, I went to more of a religious school and that's how I was able to get this path towards valuing freedom and understanding that there's, there's more out there and I should probably leave. Uh, it's really a common factor that I hear. Did you have something like that where you went to a non-government school? Yeah, I went to a private school in Venezuela, which not a lot of people can do. Um, and I, it was a Catholic uh, school. You know, my, my childhood was uh, really great. I mean, my education was, uh, was, was I cannot complain about that. And actually, you know, I, I think I see somehow the two faces of, of what happened in, in Venezuela. You know, when I was a child, my education was great. I was, um, you know, I, I used to travel abroad even some, sometimes during the year, even a great birthday parties. Um, you know, I used to have the latest versions of my favorite video games. It, it was a pretty nice life, ordinary life. And then during the year 2013, 2014, all of this change, you know, for the worst to the point where in my house, for example, we don't even have constant water supply anymore. Electricity is constantly failing. Internet connection is failing. Uh, wages are like, you know, plump, are disappearing. I mean, the way of living in the, 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 the life, life in Venezuela became so horrible to me. And, you know, this was something that I never, I was never used to because as I told you, my childhood was great. And my, when I was a teenager, yeah. it was great. And then all of a sudden I saw all of these changes, you know, and I started to value a lot of things that a lot of people take for granted, like having your light on or having water on your pipe, those kind of things. You know, like, you, know yeah. you never think that you can lose that. And all of a sudden you see all of those things gone. And now, that's now the what were I, the what were the changes there? Like with the policy and the political changes that would lead to something that drastic happening? Well, of course, when Hugo Chavez uh, took power, he decided to implement his idea of socialism of the 21st century, which is, I mean, basic socialism, basically. I mean, he started to confiscate thousands of uh, uh, private businesses, uh, successful private businesses within Venezuela. He started to nationalize many important uh, industries. And uh, for example, the, all of the electricity companies, the water uh, supply companies, the, the, the companies that pick up the trash, all of these things he started to nationalize like crazy, even restaurants, hotels. I mean, everything you can imagine was being nationalized by Hugo Chavez. For a while, it kind of worked, uh, but then, you know, basically the government ran out of money as it always happened during socialism. And this is when the chaos started to appear for all of us. Uh, he, Hugo Chavez managed to destroy all of the private uh, sector, most of the private sector, or at least important um, factories within the private sector. And then in the year 2013, 14th, maybe even before that, we started to pay huge consequences for that. Okay. So I'm kind of curious, did you experience anything where either family members or people that you knew were like, they used to work at a private company and then all of a sudden they now are a government employee. Was that like, was that a major change? Because you hear now about how like, okay, you have to look to the government for your pension, your pay, your food in terms of where you can go to the grocery store, everything. How does a change like that happen? And what is it, do you know what it's like to go from being a private citizen that can take care of themselves and provide for themselves to then being dependent on the government for literally everything? Yeah, actually, I can. I have. A, I have. A, I mean, my family has a little, a 
some experience in this regard. You know, um, my mom, we, we used to have like two different apartments in Caracas and we used to rent these apartments. And the government basically one day say that, you know, paying rent was kind of optional and there was no way for us to evict someone mm. who didn't want to pay something really similar to wow. the thing that we're watching right now with this eviction moratorium, right? Yeah. Um, oh my God. Wait, we should talk about that for a second. So for people who don't know, it's been over a year now, right? Of, of the government saying you can't kick people out if they're not paying rent. And so what we're having is oftentimes in a lot of the urban areas where there's a lot of immigrants, immigrants worked really hard to save up and buy property to then become landowners or landlords and rent out those apartments that they renovated and got all ready for the tenants. That's a normal thing to do. I mean, like I'm about to rent my house out. It's a normal thing to do. Unfortunately, a lot of the tenants who could be paying their rent decided to say, well, you can't kick me out. The government said that that's, that's bad. And you're, you're seeking profits over my ability to have a roof over my head. And so they just stopped paying. And it's been a situation of over a year now of people living in other people's properties without paying. And that's thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. And there's this story from upstate New York of this one guy who, an, an immigrant who saved up and did all this. And the guy's been living in his apartment building for over a year. And he finally wrote him and said, you are stealing from me. What you are doing is stealing. You're stealing from me and it's wrong. And the guy went to the police and said, my landlord is harassing me and please like get a restraining order against this guy. It's that bad where people are so privileged and entitled because AOC and the squad and the left are telling them that it's the landlord seeking profit over them being able to have a roof over their heads. It's a complete lie. And so what just happened is Biden extended this to now last until at least October, 2021. It's insane. There's more jobs than people available in this country right now that are looking for jobs. And we still have an eviction moratorium. It is bad. Sorry, continue. I get really frustrated with this. No, it is. And the sad part about this is that not only, you know, homeowners are the ones being hurt, but also people seeking to rent things around are going to be hurt because, you know, homeowners are going to see the situations and they're not going to be incentivized to 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 give their stuff to, to, to rent. And basically prices are going to go are going to increase dramatically if this keeps going on. I mean, yeah. this is exactly what happened in it Venezuela. It builds homelessness. If you if you tr if you might find someone able to rent you a place in Venezuela, but the price is going to be so 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 big that not a lot of I mean just a tiny minority can afford to have a to rent something something in Venezuela. So there is a housing crisis right now in the in the place. I mean, people living you know with their relatives until they are 40. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. There is yeah. no way to get independence anymore. So. And it's a slow regress. Like it, for me, it's the deterioration of the American dream because you can no longer be somebody in your early twenties, save up, get your home, build your family. You're now living with your parents through all of your twenties. Mm -hmm. And then at that point you're, I mean, you're having babies at a time where you should be kind of slowing it down and yeah. really settling into your home. And it's, it's sad because I, th I think all of our policies, we should always work to create happy people and not like manufacture them, but to give them what they need and the lifestyle and the protections they need to have their freedom to become a happy person on their own instead of forcing it through. I mean, have you read The Law by Frederick Best yet? And it's mm -hmm. like it said people or socialists see humans as little plants to be molded and shaped in their garden, however they think would be the best, prettiest way. Uh, but when it comes to their renting stuff, have you seen uh, AOC's Just Society legislation? Um, well, 
I don't know that about that, but of course I've heard, I've read a lot I'll of send it about to you. her. <laughs> yeah. So like she has yeah. her Green New Deal thing and that was her big uh-huh. piece of legislation, right? She had a second one that came out that they kind of just slowly, quietly pushed out there and it's called Just Society. Okay. And it has like five to six different pieces of legislation in the package. And I, you've got to read this. I'll send it over to you. It's um, right. a bunch of different, it's great examples of how the left will label things with very manipulative and distorted language. So one of them is rent control nationwide. And the piece of legislation for rent control is called a place to prosper. But as we know, rent control leads to homelessness. And so I just, so ironic that the place to prosper in her legislation would actually be the street according to uh, what her policy goals would achieve. So promise progress, achieve regress. It's, you gotta love it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, and uh, it is so sad, you know, it's just, you know, I have, and I, lo- I know a lot of people around here in Miami, a lot of Venezuelans who have several properties in Venezuela, but that are just, you know, locked because they cannot do anything with that, with those uh, properties and they could be renting them and solving a lot of, problem housing problem for a lot of people needing a house in Venezuela but because the government does not provide the proper incentive well they are just not doing anything with those properties so um, yeah. and, and sometimes even the government could, could go and open your your stuff and let people lean but you know uh, it is a matter of incentive this kind of, of socialist policy sounds really good but when you put them in practice you're going to realize that they are going to create the opposite result that you're trying to achieve here, which is more prosperity for people, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, kind of continuing back to what you were saying with the, those policies, uh, did you see any other situations where it was very much a heavy push on propaganda that focused around morality and equality and progress, and it led to the complete opposite? Did they do those kind of language manipulations there? Yeah, I mean, if you transit the streets in Venezuela, you're going to see a lot of propaganda, you know, trashing the individual, mm-hmm. say that uh, nothing that about, about the individual matters, everybody's all about the collective, you know, uh, we should all care about the collective uh, interests and stop caring about the individual, uh, you know, goals, because this is not good for the homeland and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, but at the end we can see clearly how collectivism ended up in a place uh, in, in Venezuela and pretty much everywhere where it has been implemented. You know, so we're going through COVID nineteen. That entire situation we saw over the last couple months, what's going on in Cuba, the left in America and around the world tried to label the protests in Cuba as people being mad about not getting access to COVID vaccines and all that jazz. And they tried to make it very much fit into their narrative. Unfortunately, it was pretty much just the people rioting and pushing back against a communist regime that's controlling them. So speaking of healthcare, because they are struggling in the healthcare sector in Cuba, especially during this pandemic. Is that happening in Venezuela? And do you have any stories of the healthcare system there? Because you have a lot of people in America on the left that say Cuba and Venezuela and all these state-run healthcare systems are just doing fantastic. Yeah, first of all, I think all of these people that say this kind of stuff, I think they are extremely naive because they Mm -hmm. actually believe the numbers provided by the Venezuelan regime or the Cuban regime or or even the Chinese regime. I mean- Right, it's like Fauci. Exactly. Where he was I mean, like, we've given them the money, but you know, they give us the numbers back. They aren't studying anything that we don't give them the yeah. funding for. 
<laughs> we mean, believe them. Yeah, it, it, it is crazy that people actually believe in this, the numbers provided by these regimes. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, it is so sad to see. I mean, every time I log in into social media, I see thousands of people requesting all kind of supplies for, for treatment to their relatives, you know, people asking for money or, or, or supplies, antibiotics, I mean, vaccines, anything you can imagine is being requested right now through social media, like regular Venezuelans trying desperately to deliver some kind of healthcare to, to the relatives that are currently dying in Venezuela because they just cannot find um, whatever treatment they need, or, or maybe they can find it, but it's extremely expensive for average Venezuelans. And, uh, you know, but hospitals in Venezuela were already collapsed before COVID-19. So you can have an idea of the, of the impact that the pandemic is currently having in a place like Venezuela. And, and the vaccination process is extremely slow. So we don't see like a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel. It, 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 it is so horrible. I mean, um, even I, I, I have an uncle who, who lost uh, recently uh, his two, uh, his two uh, parents-in-law. I don't know if there's a better word for that. But they were basically sick with COVID and they died during, you know, the same day in the, at the hospital, you know, next to bed each other. It, it was it was something really sad to see. And, and they were uh, lucky in the fact in, uh, because they were actually able to get into some hospital, receive some kind of treatment. But majority of Venezuelans don't even have that 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 luck. You know, they are just dying in, in their in their waiting rooms and in, in the streets trying to get into the hospitals. But they're they're Literally no room, hospitals are collapsing. I mean, it is a mess. It is a mess. I can't believe it. I, For me, I, I definitely want to know, with all of this going on, what exactly inspired it? Did you have a moment or was it just this growing frustration of what you were seeing, the impact it was having on your own personal life and your family? Was there a moment for you that made you want to say, screw it, I'm going to put myself out there and, and get in a little trouble maybe? <laughs> well, for, I, as I told you, I think for me was um, the fact that I saw all of this transition, you know, going from a yeah. pretty good life, nice life to total chaos and, 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 and total poverty, basically. I, know I was not even eating good anymore. You know, seeing that transition motivated me to take some kind of action because I knew that, you know, uh, I, I, I could see the collapse coming to, to my own lives and I decided to try to change, to change that. Of course, it was not, uh, I, I mean, it was not enough. We didn't do a lot of, I mean, we couldn't achieve our goal of removing Maduro, but that was my main incentive to, to, to you know, to try to deliver a better life to my, to my, to my own life and to my family. And I did, did, I saw in the Maduro regime the obstacle to doing this, so I decided to go into the political field to try to um, deliver liberty again to my homeland. Yeah, and what did that first look like for you? Um, well, the my first steps into politics I, that started, I think, the year two thousand fourteen. That's when I became a law student. You know, actually, it, it is curious because during these first years, I was uh, kind of a uh, you know, social democrat. I I used to think things like, "Hey, well, maybe if we tried the way, you know, if we try socialism the way they have it in places like Norway, we might we might uh, get it to work, right?" But once I started reading, uh, you know, the classicals like Bastian, you say, like Mises, I started to realize that none of these ideas are ever going to work. And this is when I transitioned to I became basically a classical liberal 
um, uh, you know, proponents uh, of, uh, yeah. Well, that's what I, I think is so interesting for all of it is the, um, when you think of Marx and, and all of the, you know, fantasy socialist writers back then that believed in this utopia and believed that it could be done in a better way, like, I see where they're coming from in the sense that back then it was kingdoms and it was dynasties and regimes and it was not pretty, you know what I mean? And so I really love the stories of like Catherine the Great. Uh, she was the the empress of Russia back then. And it back then it was a dynasty and she believed in this vision that the new world was creating. Like there was this enlightenment, this idea that there could be a better way than what was happening. And so I get it at that time when you're looking at, okay, there's a way where people can have dignity and people don't need to be ruled over. Seeing the readings of people like Marx and seeing the readings of Rousseau and all of those people that now we look and we're like, oh my gosh, we should never, ever actually do that. It's never going to work. At the time when you've never had that kind of experience before in society, of course, you're going to be like this could be the change that we need. And it, it must've been so inspirational to kind of read that stuff back then. Nowadays, you'd think we'd have learned our lessons by now, uh, but it still is interesting. And it makes total sense when you understand that transition in the 1700s of what life used to be like. So now we understand the best way to achieve progress is capitalism, classical liberalism, economic freedom. But I understand why people used to want something like this, because it really did mean at least delivering some sort of power to the people in its original terms. Uh, but, but that's really interesting. So you kind of got into that bubble and then luckily found more, what, classically liberal-based writers? Is that what it was on your own? Or was this in university? Yeah, this, uh, I mean, I would say I found the lie thanks to actually activism of pro-liberty uh, students groups working, you know, within my university, also some professors that you know, gave me the material to read about, you know, Bastiat Mises, uh, Hayek, all of these great uh, uh, economists and philosophers, you know, uh, and, you know, they, they helped me a lot to, um, you know, to give a second look to all of this uh, socialist uh, agenda, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it is extremely sad to see how so many people still believing in these uh, Marxist uh, theories uh after so many lives have been lost trying to implement these ideas you know because it is not only that they don't economically work i mean a lot of millions of people have died because of, of, of failed attempts to implement socialism and it is never going to work how many times do we need to keep trying the same to realize that it's not going to to to, to deliver any kind of prosperity or or or, or, or a better world for anybody i mean yeah. So, so you became an attorney. Did you, what kind of work were you doing at that point when you're, you're starting your career? Venezuela honestly, is going down? honestly, I never even get to practice law in Venezuela because, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, at the moment I finished my, my last, uh, exam in law school, that's when I was selected to come to do this leadership program in, in the USA. I didn't even attend my graduation ceremony and oh. yeah. Uh, my mom did. She she went there. I was not That's there, sweet. but she had her time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I did. I, I did like a small internship in Venezuela in civil law, uh, specialized. But uh, I never got time to to actually practice anything. 
uh, and I hope to have that that opportunity eventually. Maybe in Venezuela, or I'm actually looking for ways to become an attorney here in in, in America yeah. eventually. Well, that was my next question: Is are you, are you going to try and go to law school here, or what's? Yeah, I've been doing my research, uh, you know, with my law degree from Venezuela. All I have I have to do and and a master of law somewhere in America, and with that, uh, I could go and take the bar exam either in New York or in California, and that's going to be. That's basically my plan. I don't right now. I don't have the economic resources to do it, but I know this is the land of opportunities, and I will find a way to do it. Absolutely. Well, do you have a career path in terms of the focus that you want? Oh no, not yet. I mean, I, I uh, as I told you, I used to. I was interested in civil law when I was in Venezuela, but you know, during my last year, I was also really interested in criminal law. Now that I'm here, I'm, I might be interested in also. Uh, immigration law, which is a huge topic for me right now, since I'm an immigrant myself, I'm a refugee. I'm a, so, yet I don't know, but um, that, that those would be my 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 main choices. But I have to rediscover myself in the process. <laughs> mm, I love that. Well, we'll have to get an update from you when you uh, start taking more steps into that path. Uh, you mentioned earlier, like it, it's beyond frustrating that history is pretty clear. Okay, it, it doesn't work. And not only does it not work, it's it's very dangerous and destructive. And it's crazy to me that people can't understand that the horrors of, of Nazism, the horrors of the 20th century that we speak about often and say never again, they happen just as much and even more so with the ideas of the radical left. And, and it's so sad to me that they can't see both sides. Um, have you in your experience come up with with reasons and why in your head this happens? Do you have your own theories on it? Uh, and, well, and what are your thoughts on, I mean, 70% of young Americans right now would currently vote for a socialist. Yeah. Well, you know, thanks to my work with uh, the Fund for American Studies, you know, uh, since the year 2019, they recruited me for this project of, uh, you know, I basically... Uh, they put me on the road and I, start, I started visiting several uh, campuses within the U.S. To, to share my own story about how, why I left Venezuela and why I come here and basically share some historical facts about Venezuela and explain why socialism uh, didn't work there. And what I've heard from a lot of the students inside campuses is that, you know, they are actually worried about problems that, in my opinion, are, are very real. For example, uh, the prices of healthcare. I think the healthcare system in, in America is somehow broken. And also college tuition, for example, I think it is extremely expensive within America. But the thing that they don't actually see is that many of the problems within these uh, industries are not generated by free market and free uh, enter, enter, enterprise, but because of government interference in, in, into these fields, right? And I think this is where most uh, conservatives or classical liberal people have failed, you know, because they, I think they have failed to show the actual causes of all of these problems that I really think are real. Uh, they have failed to, to demonstrate to the people why are we having all of these problems. And then because of this failure, we see people like AOC or Bernie Sanders or whatever blaming capitalism and blaming, uh, I, I don't know, uh, um, free market. Uh, for all, all, all of these problems and because people are probably not hearing the other version of the story, the true version of, 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 this, of the story, they, they buy this idea and they decide, well, if we have 
free market within the, I don't know, the healthcare sector, it, it is not currently working. Maybe what we need is uh, uh, socialism, right? That, that's the kind of mentality I have seen. And, but people need to understand that the, the problem with the prices, the problem with, uh, um, within the field is, is, is not because of free market. It's probably because of, it's, it is always because of the opposite, it's because of government regulations, it's because of uh, the third part, the third party payment system that the government created. I mean, a lot of problems are coming from the government, but people from our side are, are failing to uh, show this reality to people and they are buying the other message. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. I completely <laughs> agree. And we have serious problems. And I always, I list healthcare and student loan crisis as, as some of the biggest and in general, the cost of college. And it's so funny to me that people will laugh at young Americans who are really well-intentioned and, and so naive and so misled and lied to about how to actually solve problems and what the root cause of problems are. One, I get a little frustrated by the fact that people are so quick to get frustrated about something without looking into the causes of the issue. Second, I wonder why can't our side improve our communication tactics and style and how we relay the information of the government's involvement and funneling of money into the college system and into healthcare as one of the serious problems that's leading to this becoming so extremely terrible. And by that, I mean terrible as in, if you get in an accident, you might literally have to sell your house because you are not going to be able to afford it anymore. It's scary. And people are really worried about it. And if you think of the average mom and pop, they are very concerned about these two issues. So it's not about just like having better communication styles and winning them over because yes, that would be nice. Of course, we want more people to, to see the world like us and to have certain values rooted in the things that we care about, like freedom. But to me, it's like, don't we want to help people? Don't we want to make happy people? And don't we want to improve lives? And wouldn't solving these two issues cause positive change on a generational level all across America? And so my funny thing that I always hear AOC say is she says, we need structural change, systemic change. There's systemic issues. And I'm like, yeah, the people like us, the pro-freedom, anti-big government individuals and, and movement people, we, if we implemented our ideas, would bring the structural systemic change that our country needs right now with a lot of these serious issues. So I think it's just so funny. They say systemic and structural. All they would do is add to the system. They think the exactly. system is so racist and horrible and oppressive. They are the system. We are the anti-system people. And so I, I hope that we can have people in policy positions that do champion these issues. Do you have any that you really look up to right now in America? Do you follow the, the public policy kind of people? Um, well, I mean, I, I really like the work that uh, you know people like uh, think tanks like Cato Institute, for example, is doing. It's mostly this, uh, uh, the, you know, to, to to talk about these topics, for example. But you know, I I I feel sometimes really frustrated with the conservative field because uh, you know I I listen to people, students that come to me and they talk about these real problems, and sometimes I hear the the answer from conservative um, leaders, and they say, hey, you should be uh, grateful of about living here in America, the best country on earth. That's probably true. I don't. I, I mean, that's yeah. why I'm here. But right? That doesn't but that, win anybody over. <laughs> exactly, and that doesn't mean the, the fact that we that America is probably the best country on earth. That doesn't erase the fact that we still have problems here that we have to yeah. fix, right? So 
I do believe that conservative needs to start working, as you say, on in communications and in actual solutions, right? And yeah, I mean, it's going to be hard because a lot of these, uh, even within the conservative field, many of these uh, politicians are controlled by the medical sector and uh, mm -hmm. the housing sector or whatever. And, and it is really it's tough, really for, you know, yeah, to, to take the right decisions. It, it, it is it is going to be really hard if if all of these big companies are protecting their interests because I mean we have it is true that um, you, you know AOC and Bernie Sanders they say all of these big companies are getting away with murder that's that might be true but it is not it is because the government is allowing them to do it by all of these regulations that protect them from competing yeah. freely in the free market right if if, if we liberalize the, the the market we are going to see a lot of problems being fixed but this is not what AOC and Bernie Sanders are pushing for they're pushing for exactly the opposite uh, direction that is going to create even more problems than the one we have right now and the conservative field is basically playing defense and on this and if well, you're so right with that like it's so funny to me because okay I run young Americans against socialism a lot of people will come up and talk to me about this <laughs> And they're like, how can we become better? We need to start talking like the left. Like we need to start using their <laughs> words and like promise like good, positive things. And I was like, why are we only trying to compete with them in terms of who can give the best fake promises? Like what the heck? Why can't we try and help people by changing their lives and then show them, look what we just did. And, and I totally understand President Trump did a lot of good stuff and he did change people's lives and he still got voted out. And, and that's for many other <laughs> reasons. But I, I really do think if we had systemic change, structural change on, on college and healthcare, I think we could change people's lives for the better that are apolitical and just want to have a good life. And, and that really gives me a lot of hope if we can get people to act on it, because it's not just about using fluffy words the way the left does. I think that's so funny and disappointing mm -hmm. that they say that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Do you get a lot of people that will will ask you? Do you you do a lot of speeches, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How is that? Do you enjoy that? I well, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I even though I was really involved in political activism, I was you know before coming here, I was like really shy. I was always, I was never like in the front of the people talking to cameras or talking to any audience. I was doing like back, backstage work or whatever. Uh, when I come here and I realize that people want to hear about me, want to hear my story, are willing to, you know, feel an auditor and to, 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 to hear what I have to say that, you know, that was a challenge for me because I was really never used to do that kind of things. And well, it has, it, it, I, I'm doing it in English, of course, because, uh, you know, I, this is not my native language. It's hard enough to public speak. Yeah, less than three years. I've never done public speaking. And all of a sudden, I saw myself doing it in a language that is not my mother language. And well, it, it was challenging, but I, I find uh, courage to do it in the fact that I, believe that a lot of people especially young adults need to hear this kind of stories you know learn about the true uh what socialism really is because uh and 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 i think people coming you know from venezuela from cuba from soviet union we have the best um you, you know tools to 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 actually speak the truth because we live uh through so through a mass through marxist uh societies and well um i'm not doing any of this because you know for me to be famous or whatever i'm just doing it because i feel is that it's the right thing to do and it is actually my way to say thank you to america for welcoming me and 
And, you know, I, I, I also, I don't want to go through the same all over again. Now that I'm here, I'm a free man. I want to keep it that way, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, I, you and I both know Daniel DiMartino and he mm-hmm. said such a nice thing of like, yes, America may be going through that checklist the way other countries have in the past, but there's one big difference and that it's that we have the infrastructure um, of a very strong movement already. We may be misstepping, we may be miscommunicating some things and we may not, you know, have everything set yet, but we at least have the infrastructure to move forward with. And, and that gave me a lot of hope as well. So I, I really am hopeful in that way. And most importantly, I, I want to ask you one more question, but I think it's so important for us to understand there's a huge difference between radical leftists that want to seize the means of production and then the very young, naive, misled young people that maybe are falling for woke politics or searching for fulfillment. And so they're getting involved in politics, all this stuff. They probably don't know what it means to nationalize industries. So when I see 70% of young Americans would vote for a socialist, I don't go, wow, 70% of my generation wants to nationalize our economy. I, I think that there's a huge gap between those people and just the naive. And I find a lot of hope in that. Uh, just to kind of close out, do you have uh, a message to these young people as somebody who is young and experienced what it's like to live without economic financial freedom? Uh, and, and now you have it back again. What's your message to the young people right now who are frustrated with America right now and are embracing leftist ideals? Well, my message is uh, don't take any of your liberties for granted. You know, it is pretty easy when you when you are born in this kind of environment and when you are born as a free man and you have not experienced anything different. It's, it's pretty easy to assume that, you know, this kind of way of living is just going to be there forever, you know. And as someone who, as I told you, you know, when I was a child, when I was a teenager, my life was pretty good. Uh, I, I, I took a lot of things for granted and because we started in Venezuela taking the wrong political decisions and implementing the wrong ideas, I saw really, really quickly how all of those nice uh, things I used to have in my life disappearing really, really quick. So uh, learn more about uh, socialism, learn about uh, you know history, for God's sake. I mean, look how socialism For God's has. sake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how it has resulted in societies like the USSR, like China, like Venezuela, like Cuba. I mean, there are so many examples out there to show that this is not the way to correct any wrong that we might be uh, having right now in America, which I, I don't deny any of those, but free market is always going to be the answer and, and, and freedom socialism is not going to solve any problem for you. It's just going to make it bigger. Thank you. And how can we stay connected with you? What's the best way for people to follow you after this? Yeah, you can follow me through my social media accounts. That would be at Jorge Galicia 95, both on Twitter and Instagram. And if you know, you can, we can uh, connect through there. You can yeah. write to and me we'll there. And we'll link those. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. So we'll link those in the bio. Thank you so much. We really appreciate awesome. it. And if anything else happens in current events, I'll probably bring you on back. How about that? So you can commentate. <laughs> Please, <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Jorge. We appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Thank you too, so much, Morgan. Bye. Bye.